This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. And welcome to Chapter Tactics, your 40k podcast which focuses on playing Warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Petey Bob, and with me I have the one, the only, swooping in from all the way up north, Peter the Falcon. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me, Pablo. Thanks for how's coming back on. How's everything so far south of me in San Diego? Oh, well, you tell me. You came out to the SoCal Open. Uh, how was your trip to San Diego? My trip so far has been fantastic. I'm actually still here. I'm uh, sitting in Anaheim. In fact, I have about a hundred people walking past me in the hallway of this uh, hotel after having uh, it all to myself for the last hour and a half. So you might have to give me a minute here and uh, let the parade pass by. But um, things have been great. Weather's been good. My kids are happy. We got to see SeaWorld today. And um, I had probably the, one of the best times of my life at uh, SoCal uh, the last two days. Yeah, and, and correction, he had one of the best times at the event, did not have one of the best showings, Peter. Hey, hey, Peter. <laughs> hey, now. hey now, listen, <laughs> listen, I did not go to win. If I had gone to win, I would have brought Shane Watts' list, and he didn't even win, so that's just how it is. So uh, while while the the parade of tourists are walking back or walking past the Canadian tourist, uh, today we're going to have a two part special episode. So first thing is Peter and I are going to talk about the SoCal Open, the top twelve lists that went five and one or better at the SoCal Open. So the best of the best. Uh, we'll break down the factions there, and then Peter actually at the event was pulling stats as they were happening. So he was plugging them into his spreadsheet. We got him the round-by-round round pairings. He got a lot of really cool stuff. And it was kind of kind of neat to see like Peter work. Like It's actually not neat at all. He's just on his computer typing. But I know what he's doing the whole time is he's, he's spreadsheeting it up. So we're going to break down some faction stats for you guys from the SoCal Open. And uh, this is the largest event that's happened post-FAQ. Uh, so it'll be a really good window and just showing mostly what the West Coast meta is like, but there were a lot of East Coasters and a lot of people who traveled as well to the SoCal Open. So it'll be a good kind of snapshot of what the pre-Orchid Codex, but post-FAQ meta looks like. And, uh, you know, the Orc Codex, although it's going to shake up the meta, I don't think it's going to shake up the meta enough so that all of a sudden, you know, these lists and, and these uh, stats become irrelevant. So this is definitely something that you should keep listening to if you are interested in 40k meta analysis and tournament results. On the second half of the episode, Val managed to snag Kelly Wallace, uh, the tournament organizer from the Warzone Atlanta tournament, uh, which is actually coming up 
very, very soon. Uh, unfortunately, the Orc... Oh, actually, fortunately, unfortunately, depending on who you ask, uh, Orc players, unfortunately, uh, the Orc Codex will not be used at the Warzone Atlanta event. It's it's pretty much not going to meet their cutoff. However, that is good for our purposes because if you follow the Warzone Atlanta and you follow the results there, you'll actually see more correlation and you'll, you'll have more stat analysis between the SoCal Open and the Warzone Atlanta, so you'll have an even bigger picture of the meta because both tournaments will have ha- will have been in a pre-codex, pre-org codex, post-FAQ meta. So it should be a lot of fun. I'm really excited about that. And also, it's just a it's just a good interview. It's just Val being Val. If you love Val, it's a great interview. Val Val is his normal charming self, uh, and Kelly Wallace is a, a tournament or- organizer of a very large uh, event with with a lot of. He's very opinionated. So he's a very opinionated guy. Um, so it's a very good interview. I, I listened to it as enjoying it as I was setting up the for recording here. It's only about forty minutes long, not too bad. So we're gonna jump right into this. Peter, are you ready? Are the tourists gone? The tourists, I believe, have left. Uh, there may be a couple stragglers. I'll do my best to fend them off. Uh, they appear to be Japanese, though, so they may be better at martial arts than I. Not that I uh, am prejudiced in any way. I just, they all looked very fit, and I, uh, if anyone uh, saw me at SoCal Open, you realize I am not. Um, so for those of you at SoCal that were there and some random stranger uh, with a beard who is strangely handsome, I, uh, like I know I am, uh, walked up to your table and was asking you about your faction statistics. It's because you are terrible at uploading lists, and you decided to either not do it or you negated to tell anybody what kind of sub factions you were playing. And that's fine. I understand you need to keep your secrets because you gotta, you gotta, you don't want anybody netlisting you. But, uh, but I wasn't gonna have it. I, I was sitting at the far end of the room and I was gonna get let no one squeak by. So. Um, so, uh, also fun fact about both Disneyland and, and tourism down here in SoCal in general is they're all Chinese tourists, Peter, every single one of them. There is actually very, 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 very small Japanese and Korean tourists, almost 90% Chinese. Are you calling Japanese and Korean people small? Is that what you're trying uh, to say here? Uh, <laughs> That's what I well, got Well, you know, <laughs> but I did work at SeaWorld for five years, so, so, um, I, I learned some basic mandarin and cantonese mostly mandarin um from the tourists just like little things like like hi goodbye thank you big for the turkey leg size because the chinese <laughs> tourists love turkey legs it's their I'm thing sure seriously is is we'd have we'd see the the tourist group coming in and we'd have to load up like a hundred legs and then they'd be gone in seconds it was terrifying just a friggin turkey massacre going on right so um anyways uh, segue aside, I'm ready for the SoCal Open. Uh, let's go ahead and jump right into it. So in first place, we had Mr. Brandon Grant, who went undefeated again, maximum points, 6-0, and with an, with essentially the list, the Astromel Terram and Castellan list. So he had 90 Guardsmen, a Bulgren Star, a Bulgren, nine, nine, 9-person unit Bulgren, uh, 3 Artemia Powdered Hellhounds, a Knight Castellan, bunch of characters to wrap everything up in a nice bow and some heavy weapon squads and two basilisks to fill out his brigade his astro military brigade so it's a very simple very formulaic list very good at what he does and he's he's very well practiced with it um so other than that there weren't a whole lot of night castellans at the event in general uh peter i know you have that number how many night castellans were there at the event 
actual knight Castellans, I believe the end result was 14. So 14 is is tiny, teensy, teensy, tiny compared to the Iron Halo, where where there where there was about where there was about um 700 ish or 7,000 ish points of knight Castellans. So so if you compare 7,000 knight you know 7,000 points knight Castellans, already you've got significantly more than 14. I think I might be yeah. wrong. No, you it uh well no it and actually be I might be a little same. less than that. Might be a little bit. You know what? I'm gonna have to get back to you on those stats, guys. The Iron Halo right. stats. But I, I just I remember seeing a lot more Knight Castellans at the Iron Halo uh than I did at the SoCal Open. Um though there there the SoCal Open had hundred and eighty people or hundred and ninety two I think is what we ended up. You what had hundred and ninety two hundred and seventy three actually played. There were uh, there were some extras that either didn't make it, but we had hundred and ninety two registered. So right, seventy-three Ver- actually played in the tournament versus a hundred at the Iron Halo. Uh, so it, the the Castella numbers are comparable, but the SoCal Open is almost double the size of the Iron Halo. So that just kind of gives you guys an idea of how how Knight Castellans have kind of fallen off the metal a little. They're obviously still going to be around, um, but I think the FAQ did its job in limiting them in some sense. And as for Blood Angels, there were not a whole lot of Blood Angels primary players as we expected, but there actually wasn't a whole lot of Blood Angels detachments. Um, either there, there was really not a whole lot of smash captains coming around. Um, a lot of the guard players that were kind of using that the the Castellan guard Blood Angels list kind of just either moved it directly into guard, uh, or or they kind of took something completely different. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of interesting to see. Yeah, there were actually um, eight players playing Blood Angels primary, and the majority of them played only Blood Angels. Um, there were only twenty one lists in total that had any Blood Angels in them. Uh, whatsoever. So you only had 13, uh, 13 pl- players using Blood Angels as a secondary faction, and only um, and I don't have this number in front of me, so I'm just gonna I, I want to say three to four were were still using Blood Angels with Imperial Knights in in guard. Most people either went pure guard with the knights, or they uh, they added custodies um, or something else. Okay. All right. So n- next up. We had Mr. Cooper Waddell also going undefeated, going 6-0 uh, with Tyranids, uh, specifically Tyranids, Gene Sailor Colt, and High Fleet Kronos. So Kraken, Kronos, um, he had uh, Swarmlord, Flyrant, a bunch of Gene Sealers, Gaunts to round up everything, a big unit of 6 Hive Guard, 3 Tyrant Guard, probably to protect the Swarmlord. Uh, and then the Gene Stealer Cult Supreme Command Detachment, he had two Maguses, a Primus, 15 Pure Strain Gene Stealers, and then in a Chronos D- Battalion, he had two Neurothropes and some Ripper Swarms. So, so for some Psychic Support, extra Command Points and whatnot. And that's it. That's, you know, as far as Tyranid goes, I've seen some some really nasty... Oh, he also had a Malanthrope too. So he had a Forge Lord Malanthrope with that minus one. Um, as far as Tyranid list goes, this is actually pretty pretty tame it's similar to what to what colin sherman was running at, at the bay area open but um it's not it's not the kind of tier list that i i expect to to wow people or to be highly fully optimized not to say that it's a bad list it's a very good list um it's just it, it just it seems like it's a, a lower lower overall in terms of everything that i think i don't know i i'm also not super experienced with tyranid so take everything i say with a grain of salt um but peter what do you think about this tier list and Cooper's performance? Well, I did get a chance to check out his uh, Game 5 and Game 6, and I- I'm going to say Cooper played extremely well. Um, 
His game six against Alan Hernandez in particular, he had Alan on the ropes by the looks of things, like straight from round one. Um, and Alan is a guy that's been playing the game for, I've been told, um, since uh, like the Land Before Time, the movie. Um, <laughs> like like in the before GW even thought about Warhammer 40k, Alan was playing Warhammer 40k. So uh, so it's uh, it's quite the feat to uh, be able to put Alan on his heels immediately and keep the pressure on. Uh, so Cooper played extremely well. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Cooper's actually a really good player. A couple years about two years ago, he he was one of the top players. He was winning, dominating people with his white scars bike list, uh, while everyone else was running like battle companies and Death Stars, all sorts of crazy stuff. He was still doing really well with with his his essentially a sixth edition list, which was white scars bikers and a fire raptor, and that was that was kind of like his list. He refused to run the battle company. Refused to run Death Stars. He, I think He's he had a like a, a baby Death Star, but he was just out playing people flat out with White Scars bikers. And so, uh, anyway, so he, it's it's nice to see him come back after uh, a two year long hiatus. Um, he had a kid. He got married. You know, all that stuff. Life hit him. Um, but he's back, and this was kind of his first premier super large mega event that he attended uh, in a while. And with his Tyranids, no less. He he used to be a really big Tyranid player. Uh, and then he sold his Tyranid army, and now he's he, he basically bought a new Tyranid army and repainted it. Uh, and so now he's got a beautiful Tyranid army again, and he's dominating with it. Uh, so it's really great to see Cooper come back in, into the limelight and do well, uh, because he's a phenomenal SoCal player, and I can't wait to see him represent us in future events like the LVO. All right, so let's move on to Mr. Alex Aquila. Uh, Alex, I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with. He's a really great guy. Love him hate him for beating rich kilton um <laughs> and so rich kilton is was the only orc player left uh who was going four and oh into the event he tied so he went four zero and one and he played alex aquila in the final round and i really really love to have seen an orc an index orc player get third place at the socal open that would have been great that would have been a good send-off for in, for orcs um <laughs> also index orcs which is what it just would have been cool it would have been a rare sight but Alex Aquila did bring a pure dark Eldar list, and as I was looking around, I didn't see a whole lot of pure dark Eldar lists. Well, I guess he brought nearly pure. I think he had like some allies. I believe he had a small. Uh, he had like a farseer. Yeah, he had a small ally talk detachment. I believe it was with like a supreme command. Um, yeah, there were a couple pure dark uh, dark Eldar players. I was rooting for Richard uh, after he beat me in round two in one of the best games I've had in my life. Um, I, I believe players heard us screaming throughout the ra- the match because it was just such a like, such a great game, and he capitalized on two of the smallest mistakes I've ever made in a Warhammer game to win. So I felt really good when all of a sudden he beat everybody else, uh, getting into round six because I was like, well, you know what, maybe it wasn't me, but it probably was. Um, anyway, no, that was uh, another great game that I, I happened to catch uh, quite a bit of, and uh, Richard really had. Uh, Really had Aquila on the on the ropes. There, uh, the first two rounds he scored like fourteen or fifteen points. It really looked like it was going to swing his way, and then he failed a six-inch charge, uh, fully rerollable, and uh, I believe he made a mistake with how the Wog Banner works, and uh, both things kind of cost him to to lose it all in the end. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. He basically made a small error, and he forgot us uh, uh, that the wall banner affected morale positively for orcs, and so that cost him a lot of a lot more boys than he needed to give up. Uh, but moving on to Alex Aquila's list, so 
Alex has a kind of an interesting Dark Eldar list. So th- there's there's different flavors of Dark Eldar lists. There's like the Rack spam. There's the the Talos engine spam. There's the witch witches and kind of like the Sean Naden special with a bunch of KG close combat units and cool stuff. Um, but Alex kind of skipped all of that. He took a Dark Eldar brigade um, with three Archons, uh, one with the labyrinth well labyrinthine cunning. Uh, all with husk blades, so super super bare bones archons. Six units of Cabalite warriors, three mandrakes for his elite slots, uh, three units of scourges, uh, two with haywire blasters and one with regular blasters, three ravagers, two raiders and four venoms. So the dedic uh, I three ra- three venoms and two raiders. So bunch of de- bunch of tr- um, dedicated transports, uh, and then one farseer skyrunner. One Sa- Simham, Simhan Farseer Skyrunner, and that's it. Oh, that's, that's the right. list. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah. So, so, so no racks. Uh, he did bring the Ravagers. He did bring Cabal the Blackheart, uh, which is still really good for Dark Eldar. But no racks, no witches, no Talos, um, no other, no special characters. Um, just a really simple, simple Dark Eldar list. Uh, it it kind of took me by surprise because it's kind of a an ode to old Dark Eldar lists back in like seventh and sixth edition where that were just kinda like Venom spam and you brought the good stuff, maybe some scourges. Uh, but yeah, he he played it phenomenally. And it just goes to show how good that, that codex is, Dark Eldar in general. Is that even a guy a guy can bring scourges and mandrakes, um, which are definitely not the cream of the crop in that codex, uh, and raiders and do well and go five zero and one at a one hundred and eighty or hundred and seventy person event. So Kudos to Alex for bringing those Dark Eldar. Next, we had Mr. Daniel Olivas. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about his list. It's it's essentially the Inari list. Uh, he has some Venoms and Kabbalite Warriors for Cabal the Blackheart and Archons. Um, he has Inari with Dark Reaper, lots of three Dark Reapers, um, big unit of Shining Spears, Eve Rain, and Autark Skyrunner, and then some Rangers and some Farseers and, and basically some, some Psychers. So... It's kind of I know and a wave serpent to cap it all off. So basically, the kind of typical Nari list, you know, Dark Reapers, big unit Dark Reapers, big unit Shining Spears, Cat Lady, bunch of random troops to round them all together, uh, and some psychers for psyker support. So it was very simple, very formulaic uh, Nari list. And uh, Daniel Lavaz has been running similar lists all year, so it's no surprise to see him out here at five and one, being the highest highest point at five and one player. Uh, so. Before we move on to the next person, uh, fifth place, I-, I would like to make a quick note about Daniel Olivas. Uh, you guys are going to hear a lot of talk about a controversy that happened between two players, Daniel Olivas and Nick Rose. Um, I would just like to set the record straight now. There there was posturing. There was definitely some angry comments and nerd rage, as you would kind of expect out of the top tables at events, at these kind of events. Um not to say that these events are always toxic, uh, but these top tables do usually get intense, um, even with the nicest, bestest players, right? So, so it, it's not at, at the end of the day, it's it's something that you'll always see at tournaments that I've always seen consistently across tournaments. Um, there's always going to be high stress levels. There's always going to be really tense moments. Um, so I wouldn't use that as a reason to not go to a tournament. Don't let it deter you. It's just kind of. Uh, a byproduct of competition at the highest level, 
right? And a lot of the times, like 99% of the time, at the end of the day, these guys will have an intense game, and then afterwards they'll shake it, they'll shake on it, it, you know, and everything will be completely fine. The players could have maybe been arguing about a rules thing, and then the game ends, and everyone's cool, everyone's happy. They go out, get a beer, and relax. Um, kind of the tense and ease eases did not happen in this case. Uh, there there was some arguing between Nick Rose and Daniel of us, um, but there was no violence. <laughs> there was no there there was no um nothing beyond simple posturing uh, of, of two players um, with egos essentially. Um, so I just wanted to set the record straight there a little bit. I, I witnessed basically the entire thing, um, and we Reese, Frankie, and myself we all talked about it as the judges of the event. Um, we decided no one needed to get banned, no one needed to get kicked out of the event. Um, and so anything you guys read online, uh, any sort of rumors or anything like that, uh, just take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Moving on to, uh, number five, Mr. Shane Watts, um, though he didn't win, uh, Peter, he did do really well. And Shane actually, uh, actually came up to me. He said this was his largest or his first, like his real large event that he'd been to. And he's a guy who's always been kind of like coming to from the frontline gaming store, um, but I've always thought of him as kind of like a newer player, and he, he kind of is. He's not like a like a Nick Rose or an Alex Fennell or a Nick Nanavati, right? Um, but he, he did really well. He played extremely well. He did really well with his custodians, and Shane deserved every win he got, and he went 5-1. and one. So he had a, essentially a billion jet bikes, I, I think. Is that safe to say? It's Peter. it's uh it's eighteen jet bikes. Uh, he'll be quick to make sure you know. And he's actually been playing this list uh, for a while. I believe he played the exact same list at Nova and uh, did very well. Um, his only loss in this tournament was to Brandon Grant. It was by two points, and um, and uh, he will tell you that a majority, like the big part of that, was uh, due to a, a ruling for one of the buildings at the table he was on. Uh, and even Brandon said that he that uh, he wished the the building wasn't built that way, and uh, <laughs> so it was a very interesting game to watch. I did happen to take a look at that near the end of that round. Um, yeah, Shane, Shane's a great guy. I hung out with him quite a bit uh, during uh, during the event. Uh, really, really smart custodies player. Um, he, oh yeah, absolutely. He's definitely he's definitely. I wouldn't say he's a hundred percent mastered them, but he's darn well close. Uh, especially yeah. with the bike spam, he he really handles himself well, even in some very poor situations. Yeah, and and I would actually say that that um, he's a really good player and he deserves to be in that that top five spot. Um, but I would say he was also helped by the fact that there were not a lot of knights um, going into day two that were in a position to challenge him, right? So, and I'm sure he would agree with uh, agree with me. Um, those custodians jet bike lists still don't do that well against like triple night lists. Generally, like the, they don't. But his yeah. game, I think it was his game four, was against uh, two night crusaders and a night castellan, and uh, he managed to pull it off. Well, there you go. Never mind. In my face, Pablo, get out of here. You don't know what you're doing. Hey, go hey, five and one no. at a GT. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, you, you know that's a fair point, Peter. Um, we do talk a lot about these matchups, and in general, I would still take the night the night list over the custodes list. I think we all, um, yeah. Even Shane, when he, when he came up to me before that match, he said, Oh, I think I'm going four and two. That was, <laughs> those was his exact words, but he managed to pull it off. He, there were a couple things that swung in his favor from, uh, from the talk I had with him. Uh, there was a, a bit of a whiff on uh, one of the knights, and then he managed to lock uh, the two crusaders. I believe they were uh, in combat and knock them down to about five wounds apiece. 
and mm. uh, and then after that he he managed to basically pull it off because he, the guy was just the other guy was just relying on his castellan and he could keep the other the other two knights tied up for the rest of the game if he really needed to wow that's yeah that works out pretty well um yeah yeah so you know it, it sounds like Shane Watts through a combination of luck and outplaying uh, managed to win a, an uphill battle but that's that's really cool and that's why you 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 should always look to see the skill level of the players versus the factions um, in terms of when you're predicting or looking at events or or trying to predict winners, it's it's almost always the, who who are the players and what are they bringing um, versus who, which list do you think it's going to win. Uh, but congratulations to Shane Watts. Uh, mostly 1,800 points of Custodes, so basically a Custodes list. Um, moving on to Mr. Richard Coatsart. Uh, Richard is one of those players. He did really well. He won the Broadside Bash. Um, he brought a an interesting Chaos Demon list. Um, one he's kind of been running... Uh, for most of the for most of the year, I want to say. Um, but he's got a Bloodmaster, Demon Prince of Chaos, Skull Taker, um, three large units of Blood Letters, um, two Pox Burners, and a Chaos Nurgle detachment. Three units of Nurglings, three Foul Blight Spawn, two Plague Burst Crawlers. So all this in one big Death Guard detachment or Nurgle detachment, and then a Zinch detachment with or a Thousand Suns detachment with Aramon, an Exalted Sorcerer, and three. Three units of cultists. Um, so he uh, he he left the bad god at home, which is Slanesh. Sorry, Slanesh players. Uh, Slanesh just isn't just doesn't doesn't cut it. Um, but he basically brought the best of of the other three gods, um, and kind of like uh, ran kind of like an interesting infantry heavy KG chaos demon list. Did did you was there a lot of chaos demons at the event, Peter? Uh, there was actually a pretty good amount. Uh, just give me a second. I'm gonna bring that data. There were 21 chaos, uh, 21 chaos uh, demon lists. Only five ran them as primary. Um, most people uh, ran them as like a secondary chaos undivided detachment. That's kind of still the flavor of the day. Um, uh-huh. There were a couple corn demon detachments, uh, pure corn, to get that um, uh, axe demon of death. Uh, but uh, yeah, for the most part, it was either chaos undivided. It was just yeah, chaos undivided. Okay. Uh, so after that, we have a string of Eldar players. Uh, sorry guys, they they. Dirty Eldar. Uh, uh, unfortunately, we were nice and diverse until this point. Um, so we had Matt Johansson and Adam Gotti and Matt Baugh, all getting seventh, eighth, and ninth place respectively. Uh, Matt Johansson was actually on the stream on the Twitch stream playing Brandon Grant on the final table. Um, he had kind of, I would call it, I would basically call it the typical Inari list as well. Uh, Shining Spears. He had two units of Shining Spears and one big unit of Dark Reapers as opposed to three units of Dark Reapers. Um, he still had Eivorine, still had all the Psychers, the Rangers, but he brought uh, Dark Eldar, um, Cabal the Blackheart Detachment with with uh, three Ravagers. So that was kind of his his different uh, list as opposed to Daniel Lavas's almost pure Eldar. So, uh, But Matt Johansson brought basically the Inari list. Inari with uh, Cabal the Blackheart and a bunch of Psychers. Very powerful, very solid, also very good player. Um, his only loss was also his last loss, which was against Brandon Grant on the top table. Uh, Adam Gotti ran kind of kind of a strange, uh, unconventional list that he actually has been running forever. I, I don't. He's been using the same Wraith Guard models since I met him back in like sixth edition, you know, like six years ago, right? Um, but anyways, he brought an Archon, some Cabalite Warriors, uh, in a patrol detachment for Cabal the Blackheart. 
uh, Supreme Command Detachment with two Spirit Seers and a Warlock for some Psychic Shenanigans, and then a Craft World Alitok Vanguard Detachment with a Farseer, and then one, two, three, three units of of Wraith Guard, um, three large units of Wraith Guard, and then two units of uh, Wraith Blades to kind of mix up everything. And that was it. That was his entire list. So, um, if you take away all of his Wraith Guard and Wraith Blades, he had a grand total of 10 models. Um, so he had 1,600 points of Wraith, Wraiths, which which was uh, very unconventional. So, um, you know, he, he had kind of like a, a traditional, not an untraditional Eldar list, um, but he did really, really well. He only lost one game. Um, he, he was outplaying a lot of his opponents. Um, and just in general, just doing a really good job. His only loss was to Cooper, um, a Tyranid player who obviously went undefeated. So his only loss was to a player who went undefeated the whole tournament. Um, and kudos to Adam Gotti for playing and and doing well with such an unconventional list. Um, Peter, was, was there anyone else running Wraithguard or Wraithblades? Um, not really. Uh, I saw in one of the lower tables there was a, a fellow that was uh, running one or two squads. Uh, one thing I'd like to bring up about Adam Gotti is uh, I, I spoke to him after his loss to Cooper, and um, like there was a point where, uh, like some pe- as some people will, will hear, um, he had had uh, probably five of his Wraith Guards scooped from the table for um, not having their bases painted, um, and he still made a game of it with losing that many points uh, off of his list to turn one. Um, he was actually quite sure he would have won the game if he hadn't gone ham um, in the late turns, thinking he could uh, wipe Cooper off the board and and uh, walking a, a couple squads of Wraithguard into Swarmlord, thinking that the, that was a, a fair fight. And uh, he, 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 he actually was laughing about it after, and that it, it most definitely wasn't. Right, right. So, and that, that's actually that's actually very uh, astute of him. And a lot of the top players, you'll know, they'll, they'll look at um, games and they'll obviously they'll gripe about dice and bad luck and all that but a lot of those top players also look at the the mistakes that they made the critical mistakes and a lot of times it's even mistakes that you don't even notice right because you see this this player who who's just played so many games with this army that he knows what little mistakes he's made um and they might not be so apparent to people who haven't played the army like yours truly um but yeah i I, adam Gotti pulled got like five models pulled for having them unbased um we were pulling models um, unpainted and unbased models at the SoCal Open. It was just a thing that was in our rules packet. And he was very, he was very, um, uh, he, he understood. He, he wasn't mad about it. There, there was no bad feelings. We told him we showed him in the packet, and he was like, "Oh, well, my bad." Um, so, so kudos to him for having a good attitude about that, but also to for winning his last game, right? Because he's he didn't paint those models magically between rounds. He he just went immediately to the next game and played without those models and won. I think he so. actually did. I, from what I understood, he was basing because he was basing them when I was talking to him about the Cooper game. He had, oh, I didn't know that. He had given someone had given him some paints or something, and he was painting the bases. So, and maybe he didn't get it done in time. I, I didn't actually get to see his game six, but um, yeah, while I was talking to him, he was uh, he was painting away on those uh, those like four or five whatever it was mm-hmm. wraith guard to see if he could get them ready for the next game. Okay, there, there might have been a miscommunication on my information there, but I'm going to defer to your better judgment, Pete, because hey, I like was I said, round six. I was busy doing. I was busy looking at other games, and, uh, specifically one game. But yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> um, one thing we haven't talked about, um, and maybe we're going to talk about it later, but I think everybody that's listening needs to do is I would really, really recommend 
watching that game six final. I uh, kind of I've kind of glossed over it between Brandon Grant and Matt Johansson. If you want to see um, a player come uh, come back from the jaws of defeat uh, like no other player can, uh, you need to watch that game. That's yeah. What I'm say. Oh yeah, absolutely. No spoilers, but um, but uh, obviously we, we know who won, so we know who snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. Um, but but yeah, watching Brandon for play from the deficit that he was put in um, was a real treat to watch. And you can also, uh, while you're watching, read the comments in chat, especially anything by me because I am hilarious. Okay, that's that's about it. <laughs> there you, you can... go, Yak yeah, Hunter. Ah, uh, now you've given it away. I, th- that's it him, man. Anybody he... in there? You're from Canada. That's that's, and you're from far north nowhere, Canada. All you guys have to do is po- wrestle polar bears and hunt yaks. That's how. That's I imagine Canadians from the north. Well, you are about forty percent correct. So, <laughs> all right. So let's go ahead and move on to Mr. Matt Baugh of Forge World Columbia. Uh, Matt is, uh, uh, I believe. Don't quote me on this. Reese told me this, so it might be incorrect. Um, but he is uh, an Adepticon TO, one of the one of the head TOs from Adepticon, a phenomenal player out of For- from Forge World Columbia. Uh, if you follow Sam Henley, Sam Henley is another phenomenal player from Forge World Columbia. He's basically one of the top Midwest Midwest players. Uh, and so Matt Baugh decided to come out to SoCal and uh, try his luck and try and take the crown away from Brandon Grant. But he failed, haha. Um, so Matt uh, was playing kind of a traditional Inarialist. He, he was running uh, two units of a Lytok, uh, or two two Eldar uh, battalions, one a Lytok, one an Ari. Excuse me. Um, his Lytok uh, battalion was very simple. It was a Farseer, two Warlocks, three Angers, three Wave Serpents. Uh, and then a battalion of Inari with the usual suspects, a bunch of Dark Reapers, two, one large unit of Shining Spears, one large unit of Dark Reapers, Dire Avengers troops instead of Guardians uh, or Rangers, and then Everain and the Spirit Seer. So a lot of Psychicers, a lot of Psychers. Uh, Matt Boz was taking the more of the Wave Serpent kind of flavor, where you kind of like use those Wave Serpents to, to uh, Swiss Army Knives to do a bunch of different things for you, and then use the powerful Inari shooting and the Shining Spears to kind of Swiss Army knife your opponent's important things away, uh, and then win with bodies and psychic powers. Uh, so Matt Baugh ended up going undefeated. Congratulations, Matt Baugh. Uh Tenth place, we had Mr. Alan DeHessa, and his list is actually um, not correctly uploaded onto BCP, so you can't see his list. Um, do you remember what Alan DeHessa was running? I remember yeah. he had Mortarian. I believe he had... Oh... He had a scorpion of some kind. Yeah, he had a relic Scorpius, um, which is the the Forge World, the 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 Forge World Scorpius whirlwind. Yeah. That if you don't move it, it shoots sixty three stupidly powerful shots. Yeah, I believe he he may have had two of those, and I really cannot remember the rest of the list. Uh, there was a point where I went to talk to him to get his list information, and uh, after I got it, I kind of wiped it from my memory. I wrote it down into a spreadsheet <laughs> and then left. So. Yeah, it was a it was a very low model count army. Um, he he had Mortarian, he had the Relic World and Scorpius. Uh, he was running Alpha Legion. Um, so a, a lot of times, what what Al, what Alan has has been running this year. So I'm assuming it's some fim, similar formula. Is he's been running a big a big demon Primarch, either Magnus or Mortarian, whoever felt like uh, one or two Relic Whirlwind Scorpiuses, a bunch of cultists, and then Psychers. And basic Alpha Legion like like good stuff troops with some with a splash of Chaos Demon maybe Demon Princes some sort um, so if you could just imagine kind of like a mixed Chaos Soups type list 
type list with a lot of really good shooting, some gunline elements, some demon princes, and of course that demon Primarch, uh, you know, hanging around in there and defending the list. Um, so that's kind of Alan DeHess's MO in terms of the list he builds. Um, it's still, it's kind of original, um, and it's also just kind of what he's always been running. Um, so kudos to going 5-1 and one with uh, Chaos Space Marines and Demons in general. Next, we're going to go on to the only Tau player to go 5-1, and one, Mr. Brian Brian. I know, I think his last name, I forgot his last name. It's like Brian Boots or Brian something. I forgot. Brian, I apologize. Uh, I know your last name starts with the letter B, um, but you will forever be Brian Brian to me in my eyes. Uh, he brought Tau, he brought a commander, an ethereal, three strike teams, three units of marker drones, uh, another Tau commander and a separate detachment with three riptides, and then a final cold star commander and another detachment with two units of stealth battlesuits and a farsight marksman. Um, so he he didn't run the um, the forge world flyer, although I think that got nerfed, right? I'm not sure. Yeah, the forge world flyer, um, they changed the name of its gun so it no longer could copy the Riptide uh, profile. Um, mm. So it it went back to the old Forge World uh, shitty profile that it previously had. <laughs> um, there was only one um, of those uh, at, at SoCal. Uh, so someone still no, decided didn't... to give it a go. Maybe they didn't know about the change. <laughs> they got nerfed into relevancy so bad that we forgot the name of them. Sunshark Bombers? No. No, 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 no. Tiger it's, Shark. It's the Tiger Shark. Uh, yeah. Tiger Shark. There we go. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, so he had basically, he had basically a kind of a typical older style towel list with, with commanders and three riptides, something kind of an ode to seventh edition, so to speak, um, with the stealth suits. I, I'm starting to see riptides come back a lot with towel players. Um, you, I, I've seen various towel lists. Um, a lot of towel players are starting to kind of really mix it up now that, the Sunshark Bomber is, is gone, and now that kind of like Knights have Bomber come back into the meta. never a thing, unfortunately. Sorry, sorry. The, one the Tiger Shark. Yes, the Tiger, the tiger Shark. shark. The Sunshark Bomber hasn't been a thing since it was made. Yeah, it's never been a thing. I bought it <laughs> when it came out without knowing the rules, and I was sorely disappointed when I built it that way. But anyway, that that is <laughs> so, neither here nor there. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Brian Brian did really well with, with Tau. The Triple Riptides is, is as nasty as it's always been since 7th edition, and I... I Combined with Iron Halo, um, Tau are definitely starting to see a big resurgence in the top tables. Um, there were a ton at the Iron Halo. Strike teams were the third most used troop choice, or the third most used unit um, in the Iron Halo behind behind um, uh, Knights, or, or Knight Castellans, and and uh, Infantry Squads. I'm sorry, Company Commanders and Infantry Squads. So, so the two most common, the two most common units were clearly um, infantry squads and company commanders. The infantry squads coming in at number one. Um, but yeah, we we're kind of surprised to see strike teams doing so well. So many people taking strike teams, strike teams, and there was just a lot of Tau players. Um, but Tau are in a good spot in the meta right now. They can deal with knights. Um, they have the ability to shoot Eldar and match Eldar in firepower. It, they're, they're kind of hurt a little bit by their mobility. Um, but with the changes to the fly keyword, uh, I definitely see more and more Tau players coming in and doing well. Uh, especially because there's so many of them with Riptide just lying around. Yeah. Uh, so they're they're all going to start bringing the Riptides again, and then they're going to take various whatever else they feel w- will work, like Sniper Drones, Fire Warriors, Crew, whatever whatever they feel works for, for their playstyle. Yeah, the, the standard list you're seeing with, that's having a lot of success, and it's actually had decent success uh, for a long time now. It's just It's just been getting people to actually play it. 
has been usually um, a Tau, either Battalion or Brigade, Tau Sept, with uh, two to three Riptides. Uh, long Strike and Hammerheads were, were a thing for a while, but I think people have moved away from them because it's just too easy to kill Long Strike um, to just get him off the board, and then you lose so much potential. Um, but then you would have a, a second detachment uh, of Tau Sept. Uh, usually, if, if you went Battalion, it'll be Battalion, Battalion. And then uh, if you went Brigade, then you might have just like a Vanguard or something to get uh, to, to get a couple more Firesight Marksmen or something like that. And then generally you'll have a third detachment that is Sassy Acept uh, for the rerolls. And those will be where you'll get your like Ethereal, your Firesight Marksmen, because they have an amazing stratagem that pops a, a Marker Light on every unit within six inches of a point on the board, which is ridiculous. And uh, that re that free reroll uh, once per mod, like uh, per unit, um, that's like there. That's generally how you're going to generate the rest of your marker lights. Uh, and it, the list works very well, especially against uh, close combat heavy lists, because you, you got to get into those riptides, and they're all going to just like pinpoint and kill one thing per turn if you uh, if you don't do it right away. So, yeah. Um, so moving on to Mr. Damien Garcia. Uh, Damien Garcia ran triple shadow swords um, and. Astro Militarum Troops. That that's basically it. Uh, his list is not in BCP. I think he got it deleted or he didn't he didn't post it. Um either way, uh Damon Garcia, congratulations. Those Shadow Swords were also gorgeously painted. Yes. Um he also did run um uh, uh three assassins. Oh yeah, he had assassins too. Yeah. yeah I, I remember a, that now. A Calexis and Eversor and a Calidus if I if I remember correctly. Uh, and then um oh, coming out in thirteenth place, Mr. Colin McDade with an Eldar list, uh, he did not go five and one. He only had four wins. The reason why I'm mentioning him briefly is he had two draws. Uh, so he essentially he went undefeated, and he went the equivalent of five and one. So I'm going to give him a brief shout out. He was running Eldar though. Um, he had Harlequins instead of the usual Dark Eldar that you see. Um, his idea was that Skyweavers did more damage than Ravagers, um, and that is correct. Skyweavers do mess up knights more than Ravagers do, um, but he decided to go with the Harlequins and, of course, the uh, the Inari special and a Lytok. So, um, basically, the Inari list, but with Harlequins instead of Dark Eldar. Uh, then, after him, we had Mr. Derek Page, the only player who had one loss or more, or one loss or less, uh, with multiple knights in his list. Uh, he had a Knight Porphyrian two Armager Helverins, and he actually brought one knight this time around. I apologize. He normally brings a couple, um, but Derek Page did not do that. He brought an Astromil Charm Detachment with, uh, does that, those two Shadow Swords? Or a Commander with Power Sword? I can't read his list. It's cut off. Com commander with Power Sword. The Porphyrion. Yeah, so the Commander like with Power Sword. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Porphyrion, he brought a Knight Porphyrion, he brought two Armager Helverins, uh, and then he brought a Blood Angel's a Blood Angels um, detachment, uh-oh, with uh, Smash Captain Malakim Fros. Who's that? Malakim Foros? Um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, he, he's he got a 205-point character um, in a Lamenters detachment. Oh, um, that's the... Um, yes, that's the named Forge World Lamenters character. Um, well, he, he brought him. Is. I don't know what he does. I I'm I'm not familiar enough. Well, a lot of those characters were just too underwhelming for me to even look twice at. Um, but you know, Derek Page and he did it well with it. So maybe there's something there. And then he also brought three Devastator squads with four heavy bolters in each squad. 
Um, so he kind of he ran the Blood Angels, Astra Militarum, Imperial Knight detachment kind of deal that you see, but his was completely different than what you normally would see. Um, he didn't have nearly as many guardsmen. He didn't. He only had one Smash Captain, um, and then he also brought a Knight Porphyrian instead of a Knight Castellan. So it was definitely a different take on the traditional Astra Militarum, Blood Angels, and uh, Imperial Knight list that you saw. Um, but Derek Page did really well out of going out of hashtag wrecked out in Arizona. Of course, his army was also very, very beautiful. And then finally, in coming in in the top fifteen, the last player went five and one. Mister Alan Hernandez. We mentioned him. He lost to Cooper, uh, and he was running. Uh, he was main. He said he was main Harlequins, but he was running basically Eldar with Howling Banshees, um, and then some Razorwing Jet Fighters and a Cabal of the Blackheart detachment, and a whole bunch of Skyweavers. And a, and a solitaire and a troop master. So he had kind of like the typical Eldar list. Actually, he didn't have a typical. He had a large unit of Shining Spears, some Howling Banshees, some Rangers, some Guardian Defenders, and then a Warlock Conclave uh, with some more Farseer Skyrunners. So, so uh, there you go. That's it. That's your top 15. A whole lot of Eldar, as I expected and predicted. Um, uh, Peter, were there any stats out of the top 15 that you want to do? you wanted to mention or talk about? No, I think we really hit on uh, on everything here. Uh, what I kind of predicted uh, for the top eight was mostly what happened. I, there was a... I, I basically nailed down what seven of the top eight in my mind were going to be. I didn't know what that eighth would be. I thought it would either be Tau or Tyranids. We got a Tyranid, so uh, like, I was pretty okay with that because there's always that one that's kind of out of left field, so... Yeah, and what what I like about the top fifteen is there there were six Eldar e Eldar kind of lists. Um, do you expect like with Inari, different misses of Inari and Craft World, the exception of Adam Gotti, but he was still running Eldar. Um, so other than that, six Eldar, which is a pretty high number, um, out of that top fifteen, it's almost almost half. Um, other than that, there were almost no repeats. But beyond Damian Garcia. And Brandon Grant, who both brought Astra Militarum, Damien ran three Shadow Swords, and Brandon Grant brought the Castellan and Guard list. Um, other than that, there were almost no repeats. I think there weren't any, right? We had a single Pure Dark Eldar player, we had a Tyranid player, a Custodes player, a Chaos Demons player, a Chaos Space Marine, or a mixed Chaos player, so you can kind of maybe lump them together. But Richard Cozart's list is so... is is, I guess it's mixed Chaos, too, because he has a Thousand Suns attachment, but, um, <laughs> you know. So two mixed Chaos players... I get a double down on the mixed chaos, uh, and then a Tau player and <clears throat> an Imperial Knights player, um, or an Imperial Soup Imperial Knights player. Um, but I, I I really like the diversity here. I like seeing that that there was Tyranids, uh, Pure Dark Eldar, Custodes, a, and the um, the Tau list. So I really like that that they added an extra kind of diversity and in the top 15 and i i honestly feel like it could have been shuffled around even more right so special shout out to rich kilton and anthony demore um both players are 4-0 going into uh round five and anthony demore was running pure death watch and rich kilton was running index orcs and and both players though they lost um and got knocked out of the top 15 they both had very very real possibilities of going five and one or six and oh um, and adding to that diversity even more. So we almost had pure Death Watch and pure Index Orcs in the top 15. Uh, we're we're basically like one Wah Banner mistake and and a, a couple Zyphon Interceptors, uh, with not whiffing on their shooting attacks to 
uh, from having pure Death Watch and pure Orcs in the top 15 as well. And both players, well, I guess uh, or Rich lost to Dark Eldar, but um, but yeah, it, it just it, it would have been very cool to see that. But I like seeing the diversity going into day two uh, of the people who are potentially gonna win the whole thing. Um, moving on, I guess to stats. Uh, Peter the Falcon swooping in with the stats. Take it away. How many? How, what were the faction numbers like? Um, going into the SoCal Open. Well, it would help if my uh, mic wasn't muted, but um, <laughs> what we got going on here, uh, the the most, uh, the top faction from a primary list perspective at SoCal, oh no, what did I do, uh, was the uh, Great Imperial Knights running 18 of the 173 lists, so just over 10%, uh, followed up by um, Assyriani uh, Eldar at 14 and then we had uh, Drukari and Deathguard with, that had 13 primary factions. And then we had Space Marines and uh, Astro Militarum. So Space Marines making a big comeback in terms of, uh, in terms of play. Uh, this is the first time in a long time that uh, we've seen those kind of numbers coming from them. Um, so that, and that's really good to hear. I blame a lot of that on probably uh, Nick Natavati trying to do his thing. Uh, in case you're hearing a lot of explosions behind me, it's because Disneyland has decided setting off fireworks it's uh, quite excessive it's the thing they the americans excessive you know we're we're the slanesh country of the world we shoot <laughs> fire disneyland actually no joke shoots off about 10 to twelve thousand dollars with fireworks every night awesome show i'm getting to see out the window while i talk to you about a 40k uh, in terms of secondary detachment uh, secondary factions uh, astro militarum was number one at 20 uh, then came uh, Eldar at 25, and uh, Chaos Demons with their 21 detachments. Uh, win percentages at the tournament. Uh, the top win percentage went to Inari, that had an average win percentage of 70.83%. Um, no real change there. Uh, next up, we, w we had Gene Steeler Cults coming in at a great 66.67%. Um, mainly because only two people ran them um, <laughs> and only one person ran them as a primary, and that would be uh, Nick Rose. So he's really the he's the outlier carrying the team. Um, for a faction that actually had representation, the next the next up is actually Eldar. They sat at 60, almost 62%, 61.9. And the Thousand Suns came in at 60.94% for their win percentage at the tournament uh, as, a, like as a whole. Uh, in he terms of... Uh, <laughs> In terms of uh, victory points, average victory points, Inari, once again, at, at the tops with an average of 27.71 victory points per game. Um, and uh, they also, actually, the uh, army that gave up the least amount of victory points, oh, it's Gene Steeler Cults again, so let's not count them because it's just Nick Rose being awesome. <laughs> once again, Inari at 20.53. So uh, not a whole lot uh, different from what you would see out of in terms of win percentages and uh and uh, like vp from what we normally have been seeing in the last little while uh, well since i've started recording these stats anari still at the top eldar generally doing very well um one thing i will say is that we had a really big dip in uh eldar regular eldar performance like uh by themselves so uh for a long time there eldar like a suriani 
uh, Ally Talk, etc., dropped to like a 47, 46% win percentage for a while, and they had been almost at 60. Um, so uh, this, if anybody seems to have gotten the big bump from the latest fact after these last like five tournaments I now have stats for, it has been like plain J and Eldar. Really? So this is just El because because the win percentage is primary for Asgardian SC is sixty one point nine. Correct. Yeah. Right. So this is just people who are running pure Eldar. Well, they may have sided in Harlequins or or something else. Right. But that is them as the primary faction. So I, the majority of their points were in some kind of Ally Talk or Ulthway, uh, mm-hmm. Samhain, whatever. Um and. And that's something that has changed. That's the one major change I would say I've seen in the because I do have a few more tournaments I'm going to be uploading to the site uh, yeah, once I'm done this trip. Uh, Kipper's melee uh, that happened over the weekend as well, and a couple others. And it's it's something that you're seeing across the board is a, a lot more people are are going back to primary ally talk or or Althway as their like their primary uh, their primary Eldar faction instead of. Anari or Drukari, and they're performing very well. Hmm. Uh, so another interesting thing I saw is that if you look at the specifically the win percentage is primary, um, but you can also just look at the faction win percentage as well. Um, your top three, if you take out Gene Sealer Colts, is Inari, uh, Thousand Sons, and Kr. Inari is Azuryani and Thousand Sons. But if you look at your top five, you've got Inari, Azuryani, Thousand Sons, Chaos Demons, and Astro Militarum. And then after Astro Militarum, well, actually, Astro Militarum have a 55% win percentage. Um, so they, they, that's where the drop-off really happens. Um, but the reason why that number is significant is if you actually look at our last week's um, episode where we talked about all the stats and the term breakdowns from tournaments going to the BAO, Thousand Suns, Azuyani, and Chaos, and Astro Militarum were kind of like in that top four. Those were always the top four factions being played. And it, it, it's kind of cool to see the SoCal Opens numbers being very similar to, to those overall averages. Obviously, they're not identical or perfect, um, but you, you kind of, you're starting to kind of see like a clear cut who the best factions are. It is, um, a, it is a quite the reflection. Um, the only two real big changes that, that you're seeing in SoCal, at least, um, the Imperial Knights win percentage, only at uh, just yep. over, uh, just under 49%. And yeah. uh, and Death Guard uh, sitting at fifty three when they have for a long time now been in the low forties uh, actually yeah. outside of a couple outlier players like Don Hoosen who is a monster of a man um, and plays <laughs> Daredeo Dreadnoughts and things like that to scare his opponents. <laughs> yeah, so, it, uh, Don Hoosen actually didn't have a very great performance either at the at the SoCal Open. Not at this um, one, no. But he had friends that carried the day, I guess, in the Death Guard true. community. And then Dark Eldar also, that's another one that, that didn't reflect well. Because remember, Dark Eldar had like a almost a 60% win percentage yeah. um, when the stats that we're going over. But here at the SoCal Open, they only went around a 50% despite having 20 lists with Dark Eldar in them. Um, so Dark Eldar did not perform well. Maybe the Dark Eldar players down here in SoCal just aren't very good. Yeah, they're probably um, you just know, garbage. I, I, and I, I say that because I've got two, I've got a teammate, um, <laughs> Keith, I apologize, buddy. You're a really great guy. Um he beat me by one point. I, I never should have let him beat me. But um, anyways, joking aside, uh, it's kind of interesting to see Dark Eldar uh, underperforming compared to the rest of the tournaments and the rest of the community. Um, I wonder if we'll see them pick up at the LVO. Um, and I think, honestly, that if we were to have the LVO tomorrow, just like magically, we had all the players together and got them into Vegas, and we had the LVO and we stat it all out, I would imagine the numbers would reflect very similarly. 
Um, the Inari win percentage might be higher because of the amount. Actually, actually, a lot of the top players are moving away from Inari, so the Inari, the Inari win percentage might actually drop a little bit. I don't know. Um, but uh, I think if we were to have the LVO tomorrow, I think we'd see similar numbers coming out of the LVO uh, reflected on both the SoCal Open and the meta in general. Do you agree, Peter? Oh, yeah, I agree 100%. Um, we've now gone well past uh, – we're now at five uh, – I think we're at, what, uh, well past 4,000 games recorded. Over. Um, LVO probably going to give an... – so, so you're able to record? So could you oh, repeat that again? Like... You were cutting off. You are quiet. Oh, sorry about that. Is this any better? Yes. Okay. Uh, with we've recorded now like forty two, forty three hundred games. Uh, LVO is going to probably generate another twelve hundred. So with that many games, you're going to it's it's general it's very likely we're going to see like a heavy reflection of the meta as a whole out of LVO alone. Yes, absolutely. Um, so let's go ahead and jump into the the um faction tactics breakdown. So this is the breakdown by sub factions in a codex. Um, first off, Space Marines. I'm already not performing very well. Actually, this is for all the tournaments. No wonder these stats look the same. Let me go to SoCal real quick. Boom. There we go. Uh, even worse. So so Space Marines, uh, once again, Ultramarines were the highest number, um, but also one of the lowest win percentages with a 34% win percentage. Um, people just aren't winning with Bobby G. It's just not happening. Outside of Nick Nadavati, no one's winning with Bobby G. And it's I guess a damn Reese. Shame. Yeah, let's not talk about Reese, okay? <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't um, listen to this podcast. We don't have to talk about him here. <laughs> uh, and and then in Astro Militarum, um, you you, you kind of saw the same numbers. Uh, you saw more Cadian players than Catachan players, but in general, the Cadian players were were performing pretty poorly with a forty four percent win percentage, which is which is slightly below average. Um, and then Catachan performing better than Cadians, um, but there's less Catachan players and they're they're performing at a fifty three point seven win percentage. Um so so you kinda saw see the numbers reflect there. Um as for Azur Yanni, uh you almost saw almost all of them were a Lytok, uh pretty much. Um but across the board solid win percentages for all of the Eldar detachments, whether you're running Bealtan, Saimhan, Earthway or a Lytok. Uh, they were just in general just doing very well. None of them have below a fifty percent win percentage. And then in Chaos Demons, uh Corn uh, actually there was only five lists with corn. Um but they have a sixty seven a monster monster sixty seven percent win percentage. So if you were running corn in your list at the SoCal Open, you were already going four and two. And one thing I'll say about this, Nurgle shows uh, like 10 lists, 12 detachments, so they look like they're very high, but a number of those uh, detachments are actually just uh, feculent gnarlmas, so it, 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 they kind <laughs> of skew the, the result there, uh, so just keep that in mind when you look at those bigger, bigger numbers. Nurgle does, did have a presence, there were a, a number of lists that brought quite a bit of uh, plague bearers, but uh, there, were, there were also some lists that were just like, here's this tree, Merry Christmas, so... Yeah, um, skipping <laughs> skipping past uh, some of the others to Dark Eldar, Cabal, the Blackheart, most used Dark Eldar faction also had the highest win percentage, short of a one random 83% win percentage with mixed Dark Eldar. 
the mixed dark alert attachment, but Cabal Blackheart being the highest consistent performing faction. Uh, and then I want to look down at Imperial Knights. This is kind of interesting. Is we mentioned that Imperial Knights win percentages dropped, but there were still twelve House Raven lists, which is the majority, which is the most amount of types of lists for knights. And each of those House Raven lists had a fifty-seven point ninety-nine percent, or a fifty-eight win percent win percentage, which is which is a good win percentage. It's almost sixty percent, which is which is a big deal. That's like a it's like a dominant list. Um so you didn't really see a whole lot of fall off on the House Raven, which I think is kinda interesting. Um House Hawkshroud and House Terran were the two second most popular ones and they both had a thirty eight percent and a forty six percent win percentage. So they they've kind of fell off a lot. Um but I wonder what those numbers say. Obviously, it's a SoCal Open. It's one event. The you know you can't pull a lot from those numbers. But I can't help but wonder or 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 dread that maybe the House Raven didn't get nerfed and the rest of the Knight Codex did. Um, I don't know. But you know, if you were running a House Raven list at the SoCal Open, you probably did pretty well, anyways. I think I think really House Raven and House Tyrannus were the only two knights that got nerfed. I just don't think it mattered. Um, yeah. The rest just weren't normally performing. House Terran has has decent results overall, um, but they don't they don't go four and zero. They're the type of list that loses its first or second game, and then and then just kind of um, submarines to victory off of those people that just don't know how to screen against three night gallants coming in your face and getting off for, uh, turn one charges. So, yeah, yeah, and um, and then other than that, the the numbers. Um, for Tyranids, Tau, and all that aren't, aren't very particularly um, wowing or made until you get to Inari when you get to that seventy that monster seventy two percent win percentage. Mm-hmm. All right, um, so let's go ahead and move to the faction versus faction numbers. Um, uh, while I'm sorting through these, Peter, was there anything you you noticed in these um, that kind of t- caught your eye? Not nothing really. I, I didn't because uh, these are still these are, are an aggregate of all the tournaments. I don't I don't uh, give the option to filter uh, to just SoCal Open in this. So I only oh, okay. just took the took the briefest look at it. Um, there weren't a whole lot of changes. Uh, Inari uh, with you know being at a seventy percent, they they now ha- have gone well above fifty percent against essentially every faction. Except for I believe Thousand Suns is still at fifty percent. Yeah. Okay. Um yeah, yeah, it didn't change much really. I was looking at Thousand Suns, they they didn't really change a whole lot from when we last talked about them. They're still really dominant against Green uh, Imperial Knights. Uh and, and lose horribly to Dark Eldar. Yep. So uh, no, none of that really changed much. And then of course, uh we don't have Val here to talk about the T Whip score for the SoCal Open, um, but I'm sure we will get Val back on after Warzone Atlanta and maybe a couple of other tournaments, and we can get the, the updated T-Whip. Uh, for those of you who don't know, T-Whip is, um, as Val calls it, the first advanced 40k stat stat um, in which you average the you take the average first loss for a faction, um, and then you compare it to other factions. So, for example... Imperial Knights, their average first loss for an Imperial Knight player is round two, um, versus some poor, uh, some poor factions where their average first loss is uh, basically one. So that you know they they go one game before they lose their first, they, they lose in round one essentially, um, on average, which is which is yeah. really bad. 
Yeah, the the T whip score or the tulip, as uh, some would call it, uh, tournaments and winning position. It really looks at um, it tries to gauge exactly the per- the percent chance you have of going four and zero, uh, and and uh, yeah, and I don't think SoCal changed it a whole lot, with the exception no. of of adding a, an orc player uh, to that four and one, so their number probably skyrocketed. Uh, oh the, yeah, Rich, Rich did. What four and zero? Let's yeah. Let's check the orc T whip because they were I they didn't, were uh, awful. Update the T whip yet? So. Oh okay, never mind. Yeah. Then. We'll we'll have Sorry. an updated T whip for you guys later. In the yeah, next in the time year, I'm guys. on, we'll have or next time Val talks about what I did that you will see the that orc T whip will be through the roof. <laughs> it's gonna go up, yeah, because of Rich Kilton's performance. Um, yeah. All right, P- Peter. Is is there any final things you want to look at stats wise for the SoCal Open? Uh, not really. I I, I the only thing I I, I want to say, and because I think we're closing up here. Is mm-hmm. uh, this was prob this was a, an amazing event put on by some really amazing people. I was super happy to have uh, attended. I was really glad that they let me help out with the Twitch stream. Everything just went uh, bonkers good. Uh, I I heard very few complaints when I was walking through. Uh, most people seemed to be having a friggin' blast, and and that's what's really important in this in this uh, in this event that we put on where we push plastic bottles and uh, roll a bunch of dice. So it was a great time. Thanks so much for having me, and I hope I get to go to another major because this was my first one, and uh, it really it really was a ball. Nice. All right, man. Well, thanks very much for coming out, Peter. Uh, as always, if you would like to email me frontlinegamingpdpop at gmail.com I look at your lists um, I don't always review them but I, I will talk to people about their lists about their tournament results or just any 40k stuff in general I love getting your guys' emails if you guys are looking for tournaments near your area contacts all that good stuff I am your go-to tournament resource for all things competitive 40k uh, you can also go to frontlinegaming.org where you can purchase GW products at 15% off MSRP, secondhand items that sell up to 50% off MSRP, sometimes even more, uh, FLG mats and ITC terrain. Stay tuned. Val and Kelly Wallace are going to come on in about 15 seconds from now and talk about the, the Kelly Wallace's kind of experience running the Warzone Atlanta and, and his thoughts on the ITC, on how to run a tournament, missions, all that jazz. It's a really great interview. I do suggest listening to that. And as always, Peter, thank you very much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. And Once have again. a good one. Yeah. See you, everybody. That, 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 that delay, the Canadian delay. Well, I got to make sure. I got to be polite. I don't want to cut you off. <laughs> all right, guys. Tonight we have a somewhat renowned tournament organizer from the Deep South. He's emerged from the bayou or perhaps the mountains of Appalachia. Kelly Wallace of Warzone Atlanta on the line. Hello, Kelly. Good evening, Val. All right. Well, I brought you on this podcast. Uh, Unbeknownst to me, there was going to be a um, special tournament organizers episode that uh, that Pablo did. I've heard you on uh, on some other other shows. you know, talking about the game in general with uh, one Adam Abramowitz. Often speeding in your car down the road. I appreciate that you seem to have at least pulled over for this episode. <laughs> so, well, when I, you know, Adam likes to catch me during my hour plus commute uh, and tell me that he abruptly will record an episode after that. So, but you've caught me on a Sunday, so I'm talking to you. I want to frame this around 
because I think, you know, very much on purpose, I, I, I think our relationship started with me writing you a lot of caps lock messages about some, you know, positions that you took, uh, you know, last year going into Warzone Atlanta. And I have continued the tradition of giving you as much shit as possible over Facebook uh, subsequently. So I'm glad that you even joined or agreed to do this, uh, this, this little discussion here. So thank you. So, oh, no problem. You know, when, it, when, when I first encountered you, uh, you were, uh, you were kind of annoying. And, uh, but I, I found as we've interacted that you and I agree on, on a great mix. Actually, I, I believe the first thing that we were sort of chatting out and me being kind of annoying was over ITC points in those days. That's right. That's right. And I, I don't know, have you found in your area, I know in my local area, like ITC points are just passing at this point. It's just a, just a given that tournaments will run them. Have you found that it's more of a moot point now? Sure, sure. It was a, well, I mean, let me be clear. We were a, we were an ITC major in our first year and our second year. Um, and then last year was the UK and we had made a decision not to ITC, express decision not to do it. Um, and, and in part, that was because between the first year and the second year, we had a lot of people uh, want to come and, and join into the fun. Uh, like I said, that first year was kind of tight, but everybody had a good time and the word got out. And what we ended up with was half a dozen or more players that were not meshing with the vibe of the of the event. Um, and by not meshing with the vibe, I mean everything from incredibly high maintenance to our judges yeah. to all the way to, you know, requiring a babysitter. Um, yeah. And and no you know, bueno. No bueno. And the, uh, you know, the decision was made, well, if, if these people are drawn to the flame of ITC points, if these moths, um, well, let, let's turn the flame off, you know, and that's fine. Um, you know, we had a lot of people that, for whatever reason, I, I don't know why, ITC weren't all that popular in the Southeast, in, you know, other than in Florida. And you know, I know you visit Florida. Florida is in the South. Isn't South south of the Mason-Dixon line? Yeah, isn't isn't it literally just that? I mean, I don't, and I'm not a Southerner. I don't really even consider Virginia the South. I mean, help the, can, help the Californian and the Canadian understand. Yeah. I mean, you've moved into it. So right. you're, you're in the thick of things there. You know, in the last year, the ITC points have really, you know, we, we switched, we listened to the crowd, uh, the mob, you know, we got them put their torches out or however you want to put it. Uh, and it was fine. Um, and, 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 I'm, and we're fine with it. Uh, I don't mind it. You know, I'm not a, I'm not an ITC points hound. I don't go chasing it. I do like to see when I play an event, how many points I get. It's fun. Sure. You know, and there's no harm to it. Uh, and again, the only the only drawback that we had was, you know, the, the quote unquote undesirable <laughs> coming in and and, uh, and trying to uh, to make it the face crushing, soul crushing event for the judges that, you know, nobody. Really yeah. And I, I think in your defense at the time, too, it was it was all manual submissions. It you was. Know. So we. Uh, well, I mean, and we still, I mean, you know, I, like I, we talked pre-show, I, you know, I used P to run our, our Warzone Gigabytes event in August. We still do manual submission for points because because the, the app does not do our totals. So That's fair. And will you be doing, so this is another, another thing, dear listeners, is they did an overall yeah. uh, for the for the ranking, which, you know, I think is completely within the spirit of, of, of the ITC and what, what they say, which is, you know, run the event that you think the people want to play. Yeah. So will you be sticking. You're sticking with that that format this year. We're sticking with that. And, and you know, j thanks for bringing that up because last year when we made the decision to switch, um, you know, one of the things that really made me very happy with with ITC that run it was that when we switched and decided to do it and announced we would be doing overall because and that's what we've done in previous years as well. So just mm -hmm. to be clear, you know, that's we merely just turned the switch back on to what we had done before. Um, there was a 
there was a number of people that were not happy with that. And, uh, and who comes riding in, you know, on his white charger to my defense, but Reese Robbins saying the I stands for independent. If that's what they want to do, that's what, they, yeah. um, you know, and I'm, I'm a okay with that. Um, I, you know, more than it. So that's what we're going to do. That's, that's what we've been doing. I know there's some other people here in the South that are. Yeah. I think, I think it's fantastic. If it's, if it's agreeable again to the, the player group, why not do it now? Yeah. Another thing that, that, you know, putting the I in ITC that, you know, you're a strong proponent of, which, by the way, and it's so funny, funny that, like, I'm thinking of, like, last year as back in the day. But I find that there's, there, there seems to be, in 8th edition, m- much less um, custom mission design outside of ITC. I see a lot of tournaments just running ITC format. Yeah. Or ETC format. So I see, like, two main, indip- like, sort of non- you know, GW sanctioned formats and not as many, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of different events that would run, you know, their own version of eternal war missions and, and things like that. And you guys are one of them yeah. and you're still keeping up with that. And uh, mission design, I know when I have had the pleasure of listening to you on podcast tends to be a, a big topic. Uh, what is it about mission design? Is, is that like a big part of TOing for you? Is that like one of your favorite things to do? It, it is. So, I mean, I do, I've done all the missions for all the war zones, the good ones, the bad ones, the, the okay ones, you know, uh, I, uh, I take great pride in, in doing it to me as, and, and I play, you know, I play at ATC, I played at Adepticon, I play at tournaments. I don't mind the ITC missions, but after you play them enough, they kind of become flat. Um, you know, I, I like, I like missions that you do a different thing every round, not just where the objectives are. Um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not trying to be overly harsh on the ITC missions. You know, I, yeah. I I like a mission set for a tournament where you have to plan to play the whole tournament, not just plan your army, play a specific set of second to that or deny your. Um, you know, to me, that's that's a more that makes the tournament more of a entire event. No, there. I mean, there is there is some difference, obviously, between sure. the different ITC missions. I do find that the that makes the nuance of them. Um, it's sort of like you can watch baseball and you can see people hit the ball and catch the ball and mm-hmm. you're watching baseball at a certain level, but you can also watch baseball and see where, you know, pitches are being located. You can see how the outfield is moving. You can see how, um, you know, batters approach different pitch counts and all that kind of stuff. So there's like, and I find that's kind of when you have a really stripped down mission set that can be, and, and something that you repetitively do, you know, it becomes a common format where that, that, that's kind of where you get the fun is in the in the nuances of of what seems very same same. I, I can see that. Um, I, I can see that. I, I think though that you know if you're running big tournaments or you're running even you're running small tournaments, most of your players are going there to play games that aren't too different from pickup games. Uh, you know the games they would go play with their buddies at the store on a weeknight or whatever. Um, they want to play in a competitive format. Uh, but they want to have play a pickup game. Uh, they want to play a game that's got some drama potentially. Mm. Um, you know, if you're if you're a high roller, you know, if you're in the top ten percent in the ITC, you know, yeah, you're you're noticing all those technical plays. You're you're the guy watching them move the outfield. You're the guy watching. Them. Um, but but those people don't buy the majority of tournament. In my yeah, opinion. Fair. You know, we won't have we don't get big tournaments if you don't cater to the to the bulk of the room. Yeah. Uh, 
and you know the bulk of the room likes likes fun missions where where there's some drama um, and, 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 and by the and way don't, it's not like yeah you're not running like missions where there's a you know there's a dreadnought in the middle and he's no. shooting randomly and stuff like that it's, it's it's not missions like that i think you nailed it there it's a lot more similar to like eternal war and i can't remember do you get do you guys do a maelstrom no no we don't no, it's, <laughs> it's kill points and, and end of game for the most part no, no, well, it's. I think when I wrote when I write it down every year when I go and revise the primer, I write down what the different components are to see uh, how to balance the the missions that are in the primer. And and I've got about I think there are six or eight different primary types and about the same number of secondary types. But it's 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 objectives and objectives can be end game. They can be progressive. Uh, they could be some special version. Uh, they could be relics. Um, and then, you know, there are different flavors of kill points. Uh, I've actually few that might actually put into the, the Warzone mission pack for this year that aren't actually in the primer um, that I've seen of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a mix up, you know, I mean, it, and every mission tends to have a kill point. Well, it tends to have two different things, whether that's an objective and a kill point or a relic and a, you know, objective or a relic and a kill point or, or some kind of those things. Yeah. And plus the uh, the standard tertiaries these days, because you have first right. strike for the most part. We have what's called come? alternate first blood, which is a non-exclusive first blood. As long as both players kill something in the same battle round, they get first blood. Um, this year, one of the changes we're doing, um, based on a recommendation from from uh, Mike Twitchell, is we're splitting the secondaries. So if you are the only one that get two points, if you both get achieve each, get one tortured. Oh, that's interesting. So a little, little uh, you know, secondary denial, uh, sorry, yeah. tertiary denial can can help you. Yeah. So the same, we we did the same thing. We overhauled a lot of our sec. So our mission structure is there's a primary that is always worth fifteen. There's a what we call it a margin of three table. You could it's a kill point game, for example, and you have fifty kill points in your list. That doesn't let you necessarily run up the or your opponent run up the score so much. Uh, you still go to this margin of it splits these fifteen the players. Um, our secondaries are always worth nine, three tertiary with a maximum of six. Uh, one of the criticisms we've had last year was that too many people could get too many points out of the secondary. So now mm. it's not. Uh, it's much harder for both players to get more than six. You could get a nine zero. You can probably get six six in some of them, but you you're not going to get both people getting more than more uh, together getting six yeah or more. you uh, you mentioned you wanted it to have a, a you know more of a feel like missions that you could potentially see published by gw like that kind of a feel actually reminds me a lot of the the approach to mission design that actually etc uses because mm-hmm. you know they they literally play a, a a maelstrom mission on top of an eternal war mission i don't know maybe there's there's something to that certainly a very popular format as well you've never been to atc right um no no i haven't so so when i started going to at six years ago i think what they used to i mean this was sixth edition fifth edition is the first day through fifth and sixth uh what they always ran was they basically ran the three eternal you know they weren't called the eternal war mission three rule book mission on top of there was a there was a you know uh, a multiple objective mission for Endgame. There was an Emperor's Will type objective, you know, uh, draw fest or want to call it, and there was kill point. You know, you, you won or lost your each round based on how well you did all three of those missions at the same time. Now that said, that would get kind of boring over you know occasionally we get boring over six games playing yeah. the same mission every time. You know, I, I'm, <laughs> but um, you know it's an interesting it's an interesting format. It makes the game more about who you're paired against and not so much about you know, and they actually, they, they, the if I'm not mistaken, they did that again this year, didn't they? Do this the first three ITC missions? Twice? They did the they did the first three ITC. Yeah. yeah. 
So that's an inter- interesting approach that I, I really haven't seen. Like we've seen standardized terrain, you know, we've seen, um, you know, other other uh, things that try and make things very same same, but not necessarily missions. Usually, people do at least have some variety in missions, like yeah. even the f- full ITC pack. So that's kind of an interesting approach. Um, one thing that that uh, sort of sparked to mind on this, and maybe it's it's the game maturing a bit, but have you noticed a difference, like a shift in 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 the tone, like with Maybe it's maybe it's Games Workshop coming out and you know actually driving the the uh, the rules packs and and having you know FAQs and errata you know contentious as they may be, uh, <laughs> they're doing them. There isn't you know there isn't an Adepticon FAQ. There isn't a Warzone Atlanta FAQ. You had one, right? Well, sure we, we we still do because there are still things that are not clear, right? Sure, so, ETC does too, but they yeah. actually have a they have like their own flowchart where it's. You know, it's sort of like if it's not covered in the ETC fact, then you go to the Games Workshop fact and blah, 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 and all, right. all, all the way on down the road, right? They're right. not generally speaking, there's very few scenarios where they overrule something right. that, that GW has. They're usually filling in gaps. Right. right. So, for example, Warzone Atlanta, I think we have one thing GW on. It's not even a fact issue. It's, a, it's how we allow people to get cover. So, um, but other than that, yeah, we... My, the reason there's not a current Warzone fact is because I haven't finished reading all the new facts yet and strip out any that, that GW has already stepped in. Yeah. Um, because because you know, it's their game. We're, we're going to play with their rules unless there's just something in there. Um, and they're... So do you think that's do you think that's settled down a little bit? The the like what used to be. I used to find there's a lot of snobbery around real 40k. We play real 40k, even though no one so, really did. Well, so, so you're you're talking about. You're talking about seventh um, yeah. and, and earlier, and, and I'll tell you that you know if Kelly and and maybe other people in Atlanta ever had a problem with the ITC, it was over the ITC fact, uh, which at the time at the time um, you know was kind of from our position driven by the mob. Um, you know, people thought invisibility was too powerful, so they changed invisibility. People thought that certain units were too powerful, so they changed those units. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's. So as far as I can tell, that's gone away. You know, you hear people whining about you on the internet here or there and wanting things changed, but nope, nobody's changed. So, um, we're not changing them. I don't think least of them are changing them. I don't think anybody. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, what I do you th- think of that about that? Like from, so clearly you had, I don't know, there's a, a book I read once about competitive gaming. I think it's called Playing to Win or something. Mm-hmm. It was the first time in, in sort of game philosophy that I realized where the people who are like, don't nerf invisibility like let the game play out because people will figure out what to do right and in the book they, they basically talk about like how in like street fighter um i think was was one of the main examples um how the you know any changes or tweaks to characters just i guess just a, a couldn't happen but in further iterations like in subsequent street fighters maybe they would change or tweak something and how, you know, it, it is like a, a legitimate question as to whether you actually go in and say, okay, here's a boots on the ground rule to like solve flyers or, you know, here's, here, <laughs> or, or more, more, uh, you know, to the moment, here's a, here's a change to the fly rule to try and, you know, de-emphasize, um, you know, things with the well, fly keyword. Or so, re-emphasize screen. Or re-emphasize screen or whatever, just yeah. up the defense on the board, right? Like, so what, uh, how does it? For you, from from a philosophical point of view, was it that you don't think you think the players should solve the problems with the tools that are there, or is it more just it wasn't your position to make that call? Uh, I think it was both. I mean, I think the players, 
you you are on the internet you read a lot of the same things i read on the internet players are very reactionary um they like to cry about everything um every, you're reactionary kelly <laughs> every new every new codex is the death of the, their current list or you know it used to be you know the new tier the new tyranid codex came out and it destroyed my tyranid army so i guess if your army is good before the codex then you know that it's it's terrible if your army's bad then it's awesome and then everybody else is crying that you're broken so the again i, I don't i don't like the mob you know calling the shots i think that you know the and, and especially not quickly um you know that said let me you know let me back up you know one of the things itc did in seventh edition that we didn't do was they didn't use the death from the skies supplement which changed how flyers work now we used it but we didn't use the dog fighting rules because we took one look at those and went that's ridiculous we now have to have a four by four additional table just for people who have flyers we're not doing that um so so you know we didn't use every rule gw put out but if you google if you ever are bored enough to google val Halfelfinger, you'll find that the first thing i ever publicly wrote or said about 40k uh, was titled "In Defense of Death from the Skies." And <laughs> very regrettable article. Uh, well, incredibly naive, and were, I'd like to think I've moved on. Were, were you pro dog fighting face? I was. I was like this. This rule says just getting like blown. I think it was just people were just so disappointed in it that they just yeah. completely pooped all over it, and that's fine. It was garbage. You know. It. It. You know. It. In many ways, it was kind of like what they just did to the fly rule. It, it took flyers and it changed all their rules for the most part, and that yep. and that was okay with me. I mean, you know, GW decided this is what they wanted to do to their ecosystem. Okay, that's the game we let's play that. Let's keep playing that game. That was before. I mean, Death from the Skies was before they were even explaining. Like we we were, we didn't even know that they knew that there was an ecosystem. We didn't. And yeah. actually, in the FAQ, they actually didn't. They they said that Death from the Skies was optional. You know, the FAQ that came out five minutes before eighth draft oh uh, I, well I, I stopped reading i stopped reading everything when the uh the uh what were they called not the end times books what were they called for 40k oh goodness gracious i can't remember anymore where, where they released all the triumvirates because yeah. it was pretty clear that when when gw starts doing that what they're doing is they're purging the system they've got lot they've paid writers to produce material and it's time to get it out and to get it into the hands of the market and then reset the so um, and they did it to fantasy, and then they did it to case. <laughs> or they were they were advancing the storyline. Sure. And I, actually, I think that legitimately they were. I, I think know. they I think they were too, but I think they had a lot of stuff that had to get flushed out of the pipes to do that. So. Sure, I guess. Well, Gellerman could have just suddenly been around after the Secretix malediction or whatever the hell it's called. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so on on that on that note, as a tournament organizer. Um, like I was laughing to myself because uh, the latest thing that I'm giving Kelly a lot of trouble about is that he has a what what some might argue is an incredibly early cutoff for for new rules, and by some I mean me, uh, because the orc book is not going to make the cut for wars on Atlanta, leaving me with the horrible choice of index orcs or continuing to lose terribly with Tau. So um, there's a question in here. Just bear with me. All right, me. go go ahead. I'm just putting you on the ropes first, and then I'll hit you with the question. Because uh, the, the joke I was going to make is, is that there's a good chance that there will be an orc FAQ out for the codex that I won't be able to use at the event. But the rule, the FAQ for that codex will be in effect for years as long as it doesn't change points. 
How's that? Yes. Yeah. That's that's possible. Certainly possible. So, what I is your know. general? What, what's your philosophy around so, having such an early rules cutoff so, so, in, so, in this so, day and age? So let's let's put some actual numbers in the uh, in the listeners. Our cutoff is Saturday the thirteenth. So, uh, and that gives us a four week to the tournament. So. Less than 30 days is our rules cut off uh, for Nuke. The reason I'm, so. I'm even making the point of this is why, why do you feel like that is that is well, a, a necessary thing? You do see you see a lot of events that either don't have a rules cut off or have one that's like super tight, like a week. Um, is there any particular I, I, reason why you feel like it's important? Who, do, can Can you tell me who has them that's like a week? Pretty, I mean, I might be talking out of my butt, but uh, I'm pretty sure the LVO is like. Is week. it? Yeah. Okay. Well, so so uh, so we, we we make people submit lists uh, in advance, and I think that that cut I, I count, don't quote me uh, the twenty seventh of October is our cutoff day for list submission. Um, so because that gives us time to get published and get them reviewed by the by the mob. The mob is good for something. The mob is great for for list. Having that rules cut off is intended to let people who want to play the new codex or new whatever. I guess there's not one going to be out there. Gives them enough time to play around, figure out what they want to do, get their list set. But it also gives everyone else the chance to say, oh, look, if I don't know what to do about Storm Boys and I'm working to be good, you know, I'm going to lose every game to Storm Boys. So, you know, the whole field needs that, needs that time. Mm -hmm. So we do the cutoff, we do the list submission at the, you know, two weeks out, and then you're locked in for the last two. Um, You know, I, I think that's fair. You know, the first year we, we did this, we were running into a similar problem with the Tau Codex. We pushed it and we pushed it and we pushed it and we pushed it back. And I think we let the Tau Codex in two weeks before the event. And okay. I never heard as much. Um, Fair enough. And There's I mean, never and, again scenario. And that was a that was a tournament where there were super tunas in the room, but they were not what was being cried about. It was the optimized stealth cadre, riptide wings. It was all the stuff that would do Codex. And not, they were just... So many things that as a TO, like you just had to take a guess at what the hell they meant in that book. That book had just things that could be read in a lot of different ways because the way they were worded. The current Tau Codex still has that, I think. Uh, I haven't really, that's one of the facts I haven't seen. Have they clarified how Montka and Kaoyun work? Um, If I recall correctly, they did. And it's actually the way the majority of play, which is you're frozen in place and... um, the one that I was happy about was that Monka was ruled that um, it's actually at the it's it's just like Kayun. So if you're within six of the commander at the start, then you're you're Monka. You don't have to be within six of the commander when you shoot. Okay, so it's a um, it's a pulse, not an aura. Yeah, that's right, Paul. We're go. gonna invent some terms here. For the record, I have not been able to find any conclusive things about the LVO, but I swear to God, it's just all current rules. Um, how do you feel the shifts in how the game work on a consistent basis is impacting? Because, I mean, it, like it or leave it, invisibility was invisibility for yeah. all of 7th edition, right? Right. I mean, for, I think for the most part, it's good. I mean, I give them a, I give them a uh, keeping up with the game. I'm going to give them a solid gentlemen's a minus um you know uh, a minus a minus wow if they would just do the simple things of hiring you know a technical writer and an attorney to actually write the rules um i think i think we'd get into the solid a maybe well you know now that they're not suing everybody (laughs) they probably just have an attorney somewhere who's like hey you guys uh, got any jobs so yeah got anything for me to do you need a technical writer and an attorney. You need both of those things. Yeah, you know, I feel in my personal life, I often need both of those things. So that's yeah. good. 
I don't see why Games Workshop should be any different. Well, and especially because we have a we have a legion of, of amateur lawyers out there that want to you know read everything they write with a with a microscope and a and a pair of tweezers and a scalpel to, to tweak the uh, the secret meanings out of the uh, the GW rules. So um, when you that is a, one that is yeah. one behavior that I wish because I mean I've been sort of hinting at a bunch of things that I think have sort of gone away. A lot of the tribalism seemed seems to have tapered off, which is fantastic. Um, uh, you know, we, we now have, you know, constant updates, to the rules, but you know, we know what intention is, you know, or at least we have, we have a six degrees of Kevin Bacon to intention. Cause there's play testers out there who talk to people, right? Yeah. Like famously at Nova, there was a ruling by one of the games designers, you know, during a game. And one of the players was like, no, it works like this. And the guy's like, I wrote it. It works yeah. like this, you know, live before your eyes, uh, rules as intended. Um, what do you make of the fact that people still, you know, go through and try and parse every single thing and, and argue for some pretty wacky it's, interpretations? It's, uh, it's maddening. I mean, you know, um, it's funny because we're just about to order the, uh, the staff t-shirts for Warzone this and, uh, and I've decided to put commissioner on the back of mine because if you want to argue with one of the floor judges, that's fine. But if I come over and make a ruling, that's it. <laughs> like we're done. Uh, you, you can leave the league or you can abide by the ruling. <laughs> um, but, uh, I don't I don't understand why people feel like the division code of how you this thing the way they want to do it is um that's a key part of the game I mean the game is is a is a nerdy venture there are lots of actual lawyers and engineers and you know people who watch a lot of law, law and order right and CSI who you know play this game so I guess it, it comes with the territory I would think so you know as an actual lawyer you know those people should be given given a book about the treatises of statutory construction before they're allowed to to say the words rules is written because uh, what you mean like that there's always a context within which rules are written uh, there's always a context you always should read them in a way that makes all of the language mean something so that nothing is a surplus you should look at precedent you should look at similar rules to see how things behave uh, not just be bound by the four words on the page so um, but you know to those to those people's credit GW also doesn't really write the rules that way so uh, uh, you know uh, I was ready to go down with the ship on uh, on whether or not you could heroically as a charge uh, I don't believe they have written the rule correctly but they now have clarified that in a fact so uh, you know yeah. I'm gonna go with what they said so you thought it was the opposite yeah, I absolutely thought it was the opposite. I, I don't think the argument that your opponent has completed all of their charge moves when they make zero charge moves is correct. So I don't think zero divided by zero is all. That's, but that is certainly a, a, a looping question. So that's, yeah. that's, that's one of the things that, I, I, again, that I just love about having regular FAQs is that would have been you know, one of those endless arguments like, um, you know, what was, what was that Tau rule that you referenced? Uh, concentrated fire or can't remember anymore. Oh, but basically uh, like yeah. there, were, there, there were all these interpretations of it that were just heinous or yeah. like endless drones. Endless uh, drones. Oh, I played against endless drones. Yeah. That gets back to the, the idea of like who's playing real 40 K. Cause like there were a lot of tournaments that would rule things as extreme as possible, as literal as possible. Right. Um, you know, like uh, if I recall, I think I think Nova was pretty literal. ETC was pretty literal. ITC, you know, made rulings, you know, in their view of what was a more balanced decision. Sure. You guys were somewhere in between, um, but you don't have to do that anymore. So we can all right. be happy singing songs and skipping through the park together. 
yes, until you unless you run into one of those things, it is. Um, you know, the, I think again, the bigger problem with 40k today stems from there being too many rules. And when I say too many rules, it's because of the bespoke. Rule. It's you know, um, if you all you have to do is look at how GW writes the fact on the, for example, the rule that says you can't use disgustingly resilient and the warlord trait that you US six up, ignore the wound ability at the same time, yeah. because they don't know all of the rules for what used to be called field note. They don't know the name. So you have disgusting resilient, you have the warlord trait, you have whatever it is the custodes have, you have whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. If they just called it feel no pain, like they did seven, it feel no pain five and pain six, what number you, they could, mm. they could write those facts so much. Right. So, um, or bring, or bring keywords in to, to bring, link back to, or bring uh, keywords in, yeah. you know, off the top of your head, you know, which, which factions get access to, um, stratagem if they use a super heavy auxiliary detachment. Wow. That's, you know? that's a deep cut. Right. Cause, cause some of them do and some of them don't. Really? Uh huh. Let's just chase this rabbit a little further. Sure. For instance, Astra Militarum. I will call them Imperial Guard because playing the game too long. Mm. An Astra Militarum super heavy auxiliary detachment, so that that shadow sword or whatever they want to take in that single slot does not get chapter. Uh, oh, does get? I'm sorry. They do get the stratagems. They don't get the chapter. Got it. That's what I'm talking about. The regiment. I, I will 100% tell you, and this is why I'm such yeah. a high caliber player, that I just assumed that that preamble stuff was just boilerplate. It's the not. Same. <laughs> it's, it's not, and that's maddening, right? So, you know, I played, I, I'm not going to say his name, I played a guy at a, it wasn't a major, it was just ET, come the, come the apocalypse, Warzone come the apocalypse, one of our one of our spinoff of it. Um, in the last round, I played a guy who was playing guard and knight combo and at the beginning of the game we had to have a discussion about how his single house raven knight does not get the household he cannot advance in charge because a single knight in a super heavy auxiliary detachment does not get a household trick you have to have a land that uh, one i did know actually right well this guy was you know uh, playing on the top table up until the next to the last round when he lost and therefore had to play another uh-huh. uh you know but he made me show him that rule in his own book. <laughs> hey. and, then, and then the next thing he did was try to do two orders on a single guard unit with his two commanders. Do that either. He made me show him that one in his So Shouldn't mess with the commish. No, I know. But, you know, <laughs> you know, the order one is more specific to guard. But things like, you know, they could standardize. If you take this kind of detachment, you do get the stratagems or you don't. You know, this kind of detachment, you do get the, how, the chapter tactics or whatever you want to call them or don't. As it is, it's it's so it's so uh, you know, slipshod you know, or or random as to. And I do wonder if that comes down to just the the you know the way that you know books are written over time. Like this one is probably more consistent, uh, the most consistent edition that there's been. I mean, there's still a dog or two in the in the books out there, and there's some that are just boring. Uh, but for the most part, we've seen consistency just because they've clearly been written in a compressed period of time instead of spread out over eight or yeah. nine years, right? So, yeah. Um, but even still, you're right. Like, it's it's like, it's like I, recently dawned on me when I was going to I went to a concert and I was watching a band play and I was like, those guys don't know every single song they've ever written. Like when they're going out on tour, they pick. Right. You know, if they've got ten albums, then you know they're going to practice. You know, two albums worth. And right. that's what they're going to go out. They don't remember every single friggin' thing that they've ever written. And I'm sure the same thing goes into rules design. Yeah. Well, I mean, my understanding is we don't, they don't put authors on them anymore because they're not 
they're not single author codecs. But then that begs the question of why isn't there a guy? Why isn't it, you know, Bill is in charge of making sure that the detachment thing is correct. <laughs> so why isn't it that guy's job? Uh, as opposed to the guy that writes the grotesques. <laughs> the, I, I think, uh, who, is, who is the famous author of the Grey Knights Codex? In uh, Matt, Matt Ward. Matt Ward, thank you. Uh, Matt Ward, I believe, and just the uh, internet vitriol, uh, I think that led to anonymity because you know whether it's it's good or for good or for worse for better or for worse um you know they they didn't want uh you know authors being pilloried for sure. you know a bad or a good rule I, I i think that's part of it but I, I i do think they're being written by the team not just individual authors from what i understand it's a very small hat like yeah amazingly small tight group of guys who actually have do all the rules output which is pretty mind-boggling i get it if they get a little jumbled up that's why we're here to call them names on the internet and get them to fix it (laughs) all right so we've uh, been leading up to this the penultimate discussion that now this is called val argues with a tournament organizer at least that's my working title recently the orcs have been spotted in some marketing hype material on 32 millimeter basis folks and there's just been this cascading gasping and indignity every time a, a, an old range gets reboxed. Clearly, they go to 32s if they're you know bigger than an elf or a human. This just has been happening. Um, but nonetheless, like you know, everyone's in their little faction buckets and they don't realize that this is coming. And so people were scandalized, and they were upset, and they were mad, and they were yelling in the internet. And I waited in there, and I said, like, guys, this is always upsetting to people, and yet no one actually cares. No one in their right mind, is going to go and tell you that you have to rebase everything to a 32-millimeter base. And who shows up to the thread <laughs> but Kelly Wallace and says, well, actually, pushes up his glasses on his nose and says, I will tell you to rebase all your guys onto 32s. That's correct. What the hell, man? Why? Well, well let, me, let me say first that I wasn't the first person to respond. Somebody did respond and said, Adepticon is going to make you do it. And you said something less than complimentary about Adepticon, I think. It's it's a four-round, eight-round weird GT that sure. plays on a Thursday and a Saturday All right. from like 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. And then they have a tea break. It's like cricket, man. It's not so, it's not like 40K anymore. So, anyway, so, yes. So let's so let's get some basic principles down here. You know you're you know who I who I'm who I am when I say this. Okay, so mm-hmm, till mm-hmm. Adepticon this year, I had. A hundred and so plague bearers, uh, all of which were on 25 millimeter bases, and I rebased them all onto 32, and then built another whatever, however many from where I was, uh, for our team tournament. Uh, okay. Um, and I did that because when I sat down to start building the additional plague bearers for the team tournament, I opened the, the new repackaged plague bearers, and what fell out of that box but 32. Right. Um, and so, for me personally, I could not stand the sight of some of them on 25s and some of them on 32. It made my skin crawl. They all needed to match. And if 32 is what they're supposed to be on, they're going to... And now then... Okay, so so I'm going to pause right there. Yeah. All right, so it's just what the new model comes with. Because we're playing a game that, like, has active models that can be 20-plus years old. You got it. Orc Boys, for example. Yeah. 1998, I think. So... I have Metal Orc Boys from 1987. Sure, but they're probably not yeah. in your active roster, you know. No, but no. The Brian Nelson orcs are probably the oldest most people sure. will pay if you're not Adam Fizzolt. Uh, but 
so like I guess I guess the the point I'm making here is why like what is the real utility in uh, for because it's an aesthetic choice for GW. sure it's not it's not a game maybe it's not an intention maybe or maybe it is okay maybe make that argument I don't know so maybe but but so so I want you to take my word that I am an orc player I have a gigantic orc army I have five you, battle sir. wagons I've got jets. I've got all kinds of the size of the models matter, right? Um, the size of the models and the size of the base matter. And orcs with an assault army, how many guys you can get into combat, how many guys it takes to surround, you know, a, an enemy unit, whether that's a vehicle or a bunch of guys on, on 30, 25s or whatever, it matters. And the size of your base has a practical effect. That, so you can't say it doesn't affect them because um, I think it I think it does. Do we agree that it can affect the game? I agree that it affects the game, but what I'm saying is who's making that call? So who's making what call? Whether to do the it call, or not? The call that orcs or, or space marines or anything like that are no longer on these bases. They're on these bases. Like the well, rules team has never said they got to be on X base. So it's funny you say that because at least the crowd of guys that I play with, every time a new rule set comes out and somebody's about to build a new army, I'll his name. It's Thomas Bird will say, am I required, you know, what is this edition's rule for base size? Because GW has often had a rule that says, they've they've done a few things. They've said a model should be on the base that it comes packaged. Mm-hmm. And they've also said at, at times in the past that you could put it on a different size base because it looks cool, right? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I have a, I mean, I have a 200 millimeter base. I think I was going to put a brass score. You know, I could put orc boys on those if I want. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't. I don't think that would be good. The but, world's uh, largest mortar team. That's right. So you know, uh, you know, they have a practical effect. And then, and I'll tell you this: in playing this game for so long, orc players are simultaneously some of the best people in the game, and also some of the worst people in the game. And and not because they're. And when I say the worst, not those people are usually not good players, but they're trying to play an edge. And and if you can give me just a moment here, I'm going to send you a pic. Okay, great radio. And I'll just respond with orc players are like Stephen Baldwin in the epic film Half-Baked, in which he says, I'm going to need something to the effect of a toothpick, a cucumber, some aluminum foil, and some scotch tape. Don't worry, man, I've made bongs out of less. We're scavengers, all right? And yeah, we're looking for whatever edge we can get. Not, not only that, but I mean, orcs is the army for the person who wants to convert, scratch, build, do whatever, right? I mean, it's, it's the army that lends itself to tweak your model, make your model look really cool, you know, make it look, you know, I have, none of my battle wagons look the same, right? But they're all, they're all built on a GW battle wagon. But what I just sent you is a picture of, of a current orc truck and the Gorka Morka. Actually, that's just the second edition orc truck. That first truck, you cannot hide it behind a, uh, you know, an inch and a half high wall. But that second truck, you um, we're about to see the same thing with the war buggies, right? You're going to have people that want to play the little matchbox car-sized buggy and claim they've got the, a thousand of them. And, and they claim been that good they're the new super one. Well, they were actually not bad, but, you know, <laughs> for, they're cheap. I mean, you know, orc stuff. So, you know, I you guess sh- shoot a couple rockets. They're awesome. This also just relates to, like, Fate Weaver. Like, right. Fate Weaver. Can you can you still play the old Fate Weaver? Can you, know? can you play the old great unclean one that's on a you know forty millimeter base or a sixty millimeter base? I mean, GW changes the models and then they change you know or they change the base size. And I don't really perceive changing the base size as significantly different from the model. Right. Yeah. Um, and at some point, I mean, 
I mean, again, I've been playing this game a long time. I have an avatar of Kane. Not that that's a great unit, but I have an avatar of Kane on a 25 millimeter base. I, I'd feel bad playing with. It. There's a line to be drawn somewhere, right? You know, the the, the other thing about the buggy conversation, those new buggies are on base. And which... like, so this is the thing, right? That that I find like it just it's a very hard line to drop because those buggies are in bases there's all kinds of vehicles, and then gw has trolled people arguing this on their page and they're right i mean there are vehicles that are on bases right now yep, yep. sentinels and stuff dreadnoughts tesseract, like wheel, tesseract vaults wheeled vehicles <laughs> um are not generally speaking on bases the picture of the torox is often on a base but it's not supplied with a base i don't think it's not uh, so, you know, and again, these are these are like probably like supply chain choices, not game design choices. And so that's why I find it a bit, it's a lot of power to give someone who's just making an aesthetic choice rather than something like you, you, you change the nature of a unit by the base that it's on. Like yep. look at a knight. Well, I mean, let's talk about, let's talk about the other army that I, let's that talk the army I played in 6th and 7th edition. Flesh Hounds. Flesh Hounds of corn. So... At one point, they were only ever shipped on square bases. And then that, and I mean, they were shipped on square, square, square bases, not the rectangle. And then at one point, they started shipping on the cavalry, fantasy cavalry rectangle. And then they got, added, then 40k players started playing. And and what do they do? So they're playing them on square bases. They're playing them on cav on the bike, the the racetrack oval bases. They were putting them on the the, the small oval uh bike bases that came out around the time that death watch first came out um and you would go to tournaments and you would see people running what was a strong list i ran it with 40 flesh hounds and a bunch of screamers and and their flesh hounds would be on three different types of um at that point gw you know killed fantasy rebased everything into you know what 40k style bases and they said fake flesh hounds are on 50 millimeter rounds the same size as um and, and that's also why aos has a basing chart because there's a lot of models, I guess, that just haven't, still haven't been reboxed. Sure, but you know, if you if you have played things on the racetrack oval bases versus a 50 millimeter round base, those racetrack ovals are a lot more maneuver. You can do a lot more damage, and you can move in a lot more interesting ways with models on those bases. They definitely have an impact on its play in a game, whether that was seventh edition game or now an eighth edition. Um, let's look at let's look at Tau drones. Tau drones are supplied with three different size pegs. Actually, there's six different size pegs. There's three shorter ones, and there's three taller ones. Right. Yeah, most the tall ones. Yeah. The tall ones are like an inch and a half high. Yeah. The shortest one is maybe half an inch high. Well, maybe do, like three quarters of an inch high. Do Tau drones come with all four of the pegs on? Uh, in, in like a Tau, like one of the like Tau baggies that come with all of them, there's, you get like one of the three large pegs and one of the three small pegs. And when you look at the, when you look at the when like for because I was thinking about this for shield drones I was like I don't want my shield drones to be all tall and stuff right so I so I was like I want to use them short pegs and so I looked them up and they're modeled actually on the website on the short peg right but does that mean that's what they should be on all the time because I'm modeling for advantage 100 percent by giving them a lower profile so in in my opinion on that you you're entitled to use whatever peg you you want that that's in there right I mean I've just built 18 destroyers for Necron. Um, I, I I think I tried to use the shorter pegs for the most, but I didn't just, go I didn't go shopboard. Now there was somebody at ATC this year that had Necrons and they were not mounted on GW pegs. They were mounted on those Corsac aluminum rods or something, and his destroyers mm. were about five inches off the. Top. Um, <laughs> That's no, but that doesn't help anybody. 
Well, it helps him see over walls. I suppose yeah, with a shooting true. with a shooting. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I'm always thinking about getting shot, not necessarily what I could shoot. I mean, I guess. you know, I've seen people before that have uh, have bike armies or chaos bikes or, or marine bikes, the big chunky space marine bikes, and they make chopper. They make them. They make them into choppers, with the big extended forks, and, and they put them on. I don't even know where these bases come from. They're kind of like a like a double length the racetrack oval. You know, the normal yeah. the skinny bike base, but twice as long. Um, which is awesome because that means when you move, you know, in whatever direction you want to move, you now have that much to go forward. If you go back, whatever. um, you know, I don't, I don't like that I, as a player. I think that you, so, and again, we're talking about modeling for advantage there. We're not talking about somebody who's got a couple hundred works on 25s and just wants to But play if I them. show up and I'm saying I can fight in four ranks and I bought these orcs, like, I'm pretty sure this is yeah. a big point because orc boys have not been bought. Like no one's bought an Orc Boy box since two thousand and six, you know. Well, like, whenever just... Black Reach came out, yeah. <laughs> you know, like there's just there's no like there are enough in circulation to satisfy the needs for yeah. Orc Boys for generations. Um, but like I, I guess the point is is like now a guy who shows up with twenty five millimeter bases is he, he's modeling for advantage because you're right he can fight in well depending on who you are you can argue four rows sure. Um, you know that is significantly different than thirty twos where you one hundred percent can only fight in two rows. Yep. So yeah, there's there's 100% a material difference there, and it's just an interesting edge case of the game where wh- who's going to draw that line? Because this is a place where I don't think we do have guidance. I think it's just literally whatever the basic came with is currently what the rule is. Right. So my I mean, guys came with 25s. You know. What's you know? I, I mean, what's the? I, I I don't claim original credit for this. You know, the modeling for advantage rule for Warzone Atlanta is as follows if you have a model that deviates significantly from the physical profile of the of the official model your opponent can always just advent if you're if you're bigger and they can see you around the corner they could just use the true line of sight to see. but if you've got a teeny tiny version of your model and they could they should be able to see you around the corner but they don't bingo um, and how about something as simple as if, it, if if the modern version of it comes on a 32 they can only fight in two ranks well, but that takes care. Of, well, that only takes care of part of it. That'd be an easy enough solution. But you know, your orcs, right? You have to jump, and I presume to jump is going to still exist in the next Probably. edition. Well, and no. I think your storm boys might also be on twenty fives and not thirty two. So anything that's going to deep strike, anything that's going to outflank, anything that's going to have to potentially cram itself into a certain space in order to deploy or whatever, now yeah. you've got a bigger footprint. Um, for, for the record, my Ludas and Storm Boys are on 32s because yeah. screw putting those guys on 25s. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with it's an you. aesthetic choice for me. So, so uh, Andrew Whitaker has an orc army that he's building. It's all on 32s. I think it looks fantastic. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it, it, it makes me sad of how much rebasing I will have to do to get my orcs playable. But, uh, you know, again, you know, you have so many rules, game, play, effects, that the, the base size potential um, where you can jam that unit in with the with the, the jump is uh, yeah. potential um, and it's it's not as simple a thing as you can only fight with two, where Fair you enough. can just imagine it and do it you know the only way to know how you can pack those 32s in is to pack 32 anyway we can go around in circles on this it is an interesting final final frontier that perhaps we need some help on how the hell do you rule this shit this stuff do old models count anymore do you have to rebase? I, I like just the idea of as long as the unit is consistent or your army is consistent, I think that's fair. And as long as it was once upon a time issued on that base, I think that's fair. I think as time goes on, you know, I, 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 I'm all for a grandfather 
in a, in a sunset so i think you're i think you're legal for a while i mean i think that maybe well, since since orcs won't be out for warrior, maybe we'll still be within the sunset provision. But then after that, all right, you, know. you heard it here, folks. It's not an official. Twenty-five ruling. millimeter boys for at least two more wars at Atlantis. Yeah, and that's what that's all we care about. Yeah, there's no way I'd make anybody rebase now. No, you're a reasonable man. I think if I, anything, people have learned that you're a very reasonable gentleman. I try and, to be. Here, uh, so I think we've used up enough of your time. Anything you want to talk about or plug or say? No, you know, I'm just uh, looking forward to seeing all, everybody at Warzone. You're going to make it again this year? Currently uh, on target for it. All right, uh, again, I'm I'm in an existential quandary as far as what I'll actually play with, but right. uh, I'll be there. Yeah, our, our defending sportsmanship champion and uh, and runner overall runner-up. So That's right. But by, by by fractions. By fractions. Could have could have avoided a lot of stuff if I just had got, <laughs> if I just had squad markings on my guys. There you go. So that rubric will be followed more closely this year. Yep. And we hopefully will have an announcement for 2019 where, where we can have more people uh, that we haven't seen before. So. Well, I know that'll be appreciated because actually there are a lot of GTs in the Southeast ITC region, but there's not a lot of majors apparently. So people are, are clamoring for, for opportunities to go and get that one major they need so right. they can compete. Well, we will, you know, like I said, we ran a we ran a 64 player. It was a major. I guess we had 63 when it started. Uh, at, at Gigabytes in Marietta. That's one of Warzone Atlanta's big sponsors. It's a, it's a mm -hmm. very big gaming store. They also serve beer and lunch. It was fantastic. Um, and I think we're trying to do that twice a year. I think we're going to try and do like a, an early in the year one of those two. Um, so, you know, there may be majors in the Atlanta area um, that, that we're running. So uh, if we can make that work out. So we've hey, got yeah. all this terrain. We might as well do some with it. Absolutely. Well, I wish you the best of luck with your uh, Warzone Empire. Yeah. And uh, perhaps one day we'll be talking about Warzone points. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Kelly. It's been Thanks, great Val. chatting. Yep. See you soon.